Hearing the words of the song we have just sung, they are such an appropriate prayer to consider for our Christian walk. And I, as I was listening to the words we have been singing together and praying together through song, I was thinking, Haley, would you consider these words that we have just sung as a wonderful prayer for your new Christian life? Uh, because it so well summarizes what we desire for you and what we desire for all and every one of us, uh, the Christian life. Uh, this is not what causes us to become Christians. Uh, but this is what it means to follow Jesus once we have experienced a new birth and have repented and trusted in Christ. Uh, it's so good as we, uh, as we are here gathered this morning and as I look to you to see some new faces that we haven't seen in a while who have come back from, uh, from their travels. The Giza family is back from Portland. Welcome back. We're glad you're here. Uh, it's also sweet to see Jackson's family members here with us. We're glad you all are here this morning. Would you think that every human being would respond well to being shown kindness? Would you say that every human being would naturally respond well to being shown kindness? Who would be so, we might say, foolish to reject someone's act of kindness? And yet it happens. I wonder if you have an experience in the past when your act of kindness to someone else was returned with rejection or with, with an evil response back. Perhaps you've had some such experiences and you are still hurt by them, or if the hurt is passed and healed, the memory of those experiences are still there with you. The text we are looking at this morning from God's Word will show us that there are times when people do reject kindness. But when this rejection is towards the kindness shown by God's anointed king, the results in the long run are devastating. So let's open God's Word to 2 Samuel chapter 10. We'll be reading from verse 1 to the end of the chapter, verse 19. 2 Samuel chapter 10. We are working our way through the book of uh, 2 Samuel, and we have uh, plotted chapter by chapter through this book. Uh, today we are looking at this particular chapter where we see kindness rejected. Listen to God's word, 2 Samuel chapter 10. After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanan, his son, reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanan, their lord, Do you think, because David has sent comforters to you, that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? So Hanan took David's servants 
and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. When it was told to David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, Remain at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rehob and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers. And the king of Makkah with a thousand men, and the men of Tob, 12,000 men. And when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the hosts of the mighty men. And the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the gate, and the Syrians of Zobah and of Rohab, and the men of Tob and Makkah were by themselves in the open country. When Joab saw that the battle was set against him, both in the front and in the rear, he chose some of the best of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men he put in the charge of Abishai, the, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said, If the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage, and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God, and may the Lord do what seems good to him. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. And Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. But when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together and had the Dazers sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates. They came to Helam with Shobak, the commander of the army of Hadadezer, at their head. And when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Helam. The Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with him. And the Syrians fled before Israel, and David killed of the Syrians the men of 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen and wounded Shobach, the commander of their army, so that he died there. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadadezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. Amen. This is God's word for us. This morning, would you join me in praying and asking God to speak to our hearts? Let's pray. Father, this is your word. You have revealed to us the ways in which you have worked for your people. We ask, Father, that you would help us hear your word. And I ask, Father, that you would help me proclaim it in a way that your intentions with this passage would be clear to us, it would, that they would grip our hearts that they would touch us, that would draw our hearts to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. A chapter in which battles are described in a more detailed way 
This is not the only chapter in the book that we have seen battles. We have seen battles back in chapter 8 as well. But there is an important word that connects this chapter of battles with the previous chapter, chapter 9. The Hebrew word for loyally that shows up in the first part of this chapter, the Hebrew word for loyally is the word hesed, which is kindness, which can be translated loving kindness or loyal kindness. We saw last week uh, one of the greatest chapters in the Old Testament about showing the kindness of God, shown through the king God had anointed. Well, the, the same word that showed up in chapter 9 shows up here in chapter 10. So chapter 10 is connected thematically with chapter 9 through the theme of kindness. In both chapters, David, God's anointed king, extends that kindness. In chapter 9 to Mephibosheth, in chapter 10, this kindness is, is shown to a pagan king. Uh, but in this chapter, in chapter 10, this kindness is rejected. It, uh, we, show the re- we see the rejection of this kindness in the first few ch- verses of the chapter. And then for the rest of the chapter, we see how foolish it was for, uh, for, for the king and for his nation and for his allies to reject this kindness. So if we look at the whole of this chapter that, that is filled with battles, the, the argument, the, the lesson this chapter is seeking to convince you and I today is that rejecting the king's kindness is folly. Rejecting the king's kindness is folly. It's foolish. This chapter reveals three moves, three moments, how this folly unfolds for us. Uh, how the nations, how the, the pagan kings who were shown initially kindness from God's anointed king how they squandered that, rejected it, and how foolish it was for them to do so. Three moves in this story, in the unfolding of this lesson. Move number one, or point number one, folly starts with mistreatment of the king's kindness. Folly starts with mistreatment of the king's kindness. Kindness. We see this in, in our story in the first five verses of the chapter. David takes the initiative to reach out to the son of the Ammonite king because his father died. King Nahash was among the pagan kings who treated David with loyalty, who treated David well. Uh, so David wanted to show honor to this pagan king even in his death. Uh, So David is committed not only to show honor to him even in his death, but he's committed to show kindness and loyalty to to the follower, the successor, the the king's son. Verse 1, we we are told by the narrator of David's heart intentions, his thoughts. The narrator, by the way, in, in biblical narrative, when we read stories in the Bible, 
the narrator always represents the perspective of God. He's able to see what otherwise you and I would not able to see in characters. He would be able to see their intentions, their motives. Always a narrator will tell us the perspective of God. He has information that only God could have given him. So here, at the very beginning of the chapter, we're told of David's intentions, of David's thoughts, of David's heart posture in acting kindly. Verse 1, David said, I will deal loyally or kindly with Hanan, the son of Nahash. As his father dealt loyally with me, so David sent his servants to console him concerning his father. Friends, it's, it's important for us to notice that David's kindness was extended also to pagan kings. Not only to Mephibosheth, uh, the, the son of, of Saul's house, of, of Jonathan, but even to pagan kings. David is willing to extend kindness and loyalty to them. Now, Hanan's name in Hebrew is related to being gracious or showing grace. It comes from the, the female version of Hanan is Hannah. As we have seen, Hannah uh, had a wonderful poem at the beginning of the, of the book of 1 Samuel. Here we see a character whose name sounds very similar to ha Hannah. His name is Hanan, showing grace. But sadly... Hanan's response to being shown kindness was the very opposite of receiving that kindness graciously. He did not receive kindness well. Quite the opposite, he received it with suspicion. Now, David's kindness is, is interpreted by Hanan and by his advisors with suspicion. The advisors of the new king became suspicious of David's motives, of his motivation behind this kind of actness. Look at verse 3. The princes of the Ammonites said to Hanan, their lord, do you think, because David has sent comforters to you, that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? The city they're talking about is is the capital city of the Ammonites at that time, is uh, Reba. We're going to see that show up in chapter 11 and chapter 12. In other words, they assume that David cannot be this good merely to show this kindness for the sake of kindness. He must have an ill intent. They suspect David of using this opportunity of grief to spy on them and, and then to attack them and to harm them. And this suspicious response, this suspicious reframing of David's kindness will change the fate of this king and of his nation and of the surrounding allies of this nation. Treating others with suspicion Friends, treating others with suspicion leads to a lot of damage. Sin in our own hearts leads us to cast 
evil motives on others. To presume, to assume that others must have an evil intent. We are prone to distrust others. In our sinfulness, we're prone to assume the, the worst in others as a first instinct or as a predominant instinct. We are prone to interpret others uncharitably. We are prone to suspicion in our own relationships. As one Bible teacher put it beautifully, distrust prevents us from seeing the good intentions for what they are. And friends, when we let suspicion and distrust guide our interpretation of others, it leads to a lot of relational damage. And this is not just an Old Testament problem. It's a New Testament issue as well. At one point, the Apostle Paul spoke to a church that was caught up in quite a bit of conflict, in quite a bit of disunity. They were treating each other wrongfully. Say, which place is that in the New Testament? The, the church in Corinth. The church in Corinth, they were bickering against each other. And Paul has to, to teach them and correct them that in their conflicts, they were showing their lack of love for one another. And in the famous chapter on love in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 13, which was written for a church that was assuming ill will by the way they were misusing their gifts towards one each, uh, with one another, Paul gives this beautiful picture of what genuine love, of what Christian love is. He says in 1 Corinthians 13, 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Believes all things and hopes all things. Those are characteristics of a charitable interpretation. The lack of that is the, 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 the treating of others with an uncharitable, suspicious, always assuming the worse, or leading with that instinct, or letting that instinct be the predominant way in which we look at someone else. Friends, examine your own heart. Do you tend to interpret others suspiciously? If so, don't be surprised that there is relational damage in your relationships. If you find in yourself a, a constant or a, a, a consistent instinct of treating others or looking at others suspiciously, I want to ask you to repent. Just confess it before the Lord. Ask the Lord to help you turn away from it. And, uh, and ask the Lord to help you grow out of that. Sometimes responding to others with distrust and suspicion might be caused by the fact that some of that trust may have been broken. And it may take time to regain treating someone with suspicion, uh, with, with trust. 
It may take time to, to repair that trust. I understand. But sometimes our hearts respond sinfully by not being willing to extend a charitable interpretation to others. So we want to ask the Lord, Lord, even if some of the distrust has been explained by understandable situations, ask the Lord to help you examine your own heart if somehow in your own heart uh, you have now adapted or put on a posture of just looking at others suspiciously and with distrust. Look in your own heart if your own heart has been affected by suspicious thinking. If treating others with suspicion leads to lots of relational damage, it's even more so the case. When we adopt that suspicious posture towards treating God or God's king with suspicion. When that happens, the results are ruin and devastation. Friends, this is one of the tricks Satan used even in the garden to sow seeds of suspicion about God's intention for not allowing Adam and Eve to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In, in different ways, uh, the serpent in the garden suspected what was God's motive in forbidding uh, Adam and Eve not to eat of the, tr- of the, of the tree of, of knowledge of good and evil. And one of the powerful tricks of Satan is to sow this suspicious thinking motive uh, and casting that suspicion on God's motivations for the way he acts towards us. Oh, friends, if, God, if, if Satan can make you doubt the goodness of God's plans and actions, he has a strong foothold into your heart and thinking. And if, if you and I buy into that suspicious thinking about God's motivation for his plans, as if he's out there to destroy you, as if he's out there to withhold the good from you, you will be destroyed. But only if you keep holding on and keep uh, embracing that suspicious uh, approach to his kindness. Oh, friends, God's kindness is not set against us. God's kindness is set for us. But rejecting God's kindness starts with this suspicious thinking about his motives. I want you to just be aware of how this rejection of God's kindness begins. It starts with suspicious thoughts about God's motives. What are the ways in which our hearts deploy suspicious thinking against the Lord? Perhaps, and especially when when we go through difficult scenarios, when we go through difficult circumstances, it's easy for us to, to look at God and, and ask, Lord, are you, are you still for me? Are you still with me? When our hearts, when your hearts and thinking goes in that direction, be cautious. Be cautious of, of, of casting suspicious thoughts on God's motives towards you. Oh, friends, God has given us his son, Jesus, to show us his kindness. Why would he treat, why would we treat his kindness suspiciously? 
So rejecting the king's kindness is folly because it starts with this mistreatment of God's, of the king's kindness. But this folly continues in the passage that we've read by uh, showing us that uh, mistreating the king's kindness shifts to open opposition to God's king. Uh, the Ammonites, uh, when they suspect and are, are suspicious of what David showed towards them, they, uh, they mistreat the kindness of the king by shaming the king's servants. And uh, verse 6 describes the outcome of that, that relational damage, as they have become a stench to David. And what do they do when they find out that, that their relationship has been damaged? Instead of repenting, instead of coming down and, and bowing to King David and recognizing we have made a big blunder, please forgive us, we, that was not the right response to what you have shown us. Instead of trying to, to go to the king and ask for forgiveness, what do they do? They persist in their folly by now engaging in open opposition to the king. The suspicious kings initiate war against God's king by hiring help. Verses 6 through 8, we read that besides their own army, the Ammonites hired 33,000 soldiers from neighboring nations. And they are the ones who come to battle against David. We're not told in the, out, in the description of, 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 of these battles that David initiated the war against the Ammonites. David sent Joab only when he heard that the Ammonites gathered for war against him. And this was not an easy battle. Uh, the, Ammonite, the, the enemies uh, planned to attack from two opposite directions. We don't know how many how many soldiers, how large the army of the Ammonites was. We're just told that their alliance, the help they hired, was 33,000 foot soldiers. And doing that on two battlefronts, opposite from each other, the narrator reveals to us the plan the commander of David's army had for this battle. It was a tough situation. And it's interesting how it leads, showing kindness to others when rejected makes things a lot worse. That's, this is what we see here. But in response to this increased tension, Joab's, Joab's words towards this battle, in his words we see the opposite of treating God suspiciously. We see the kind of, a, of the attitude we should have towards the Lord that is the exact opposite of what of what was shown to us earlier. In Joab's words, we see a heart of a man who trusts the fate of his life and of this battle to the Lord. After laying down his strategy, after calling his army to be courageous, to be courageous for the people of God, to be courageous for the cities of God, uh, this man, Joab, recognizes, hey, th we and our cities belong to the Lord. This is not just about us. Here's a man who, who looks to what he has and real, realizes and says, these belong to the Lord. But notice where he places his confidence after he calls his, 
commanders, after he calls his soldiers to be courageous, he finishes his encouragement with these words in verse 12. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. Here's the words of a man who looks to the Lord charitably, in trust, in reliance of the Lord's good intentions. There's so much truth in what Joab says regarding this battle. Joab desires for the outcome not to be what seems good to him, but what seems good to the Lord. That's trust. Joab wants God's motivations and God's good plans to prevail. Now, Joab doesn't know the details of what God's good plans are. He does the best he can to prepare for what's ahead. And without knowing the outcome of this battle, he simply says, May the Lord do what is good to him. What if the Lord had plans to humble David and his army in this season, in this moment? It has still been good. As we will see, starting with chapter 11, the Lord will turn the sword against David, starting with chapter 11. And we'll see why. In this moment, Joab doesn't know the outcome. But it's powerful to see his words. May the Lord do what seems good in his eyes. These are the words of a, of a man who trusted in the Lord's kindness and goodness. That his motives, that his intentions are going to be good regardless of how the details play out. Well, friends, these words of Joab are the heart of the chapter. Faith, as one Bible teacher put it beautifully, faith is knowing that the Lord is good and that he does what is good. What is good is decided by God, not us. And the outcome of this battle is quickly summarized. The enemy fled away. Verses 13 and 14. The enemy fled away on both fronts. There's not a comment about how many casualties there were. If anything, the impression we get is that the enemy actually did not really fight much. They fled from the battlefield. The Lord has done what seemed good to him. The Lord has caused the enemy to flee from before the army of Israel. Oh, my friends, the safest way for us is to trust in the goodness of God regarding the outcome of the events. That he will do what is good in his eyes. Not in our eyes, but in his. Now, it's important for us to, to realize here that the Ammonites are not being crushed in this battle. They're only pushed back. They run away from the, from the field of battle. The capturing of their capital, city, will be the background for the events happening in chapter 11 and 12. Here we simply see that the Ammonites are not able to win against David's army, no matter how big their alliances are. 
And while this is not the end of the Ammonites in this book, what this chapter tells us is simply that those who persist in their folly to oppose God's king cannot win against him. So, the moves so far about the folly of rejecting kindness is to realize that this folly starts with mistreating God's or the king's kindness. And second, it leads or goes on with or continues with open opposition. But this opposition could not win. And then there's a final moment. Folly persists in continued opposition to God's king. Folly not only mistreats the king's kindness, folly not only moves or shifts to open opposition against the king's kindness, but folly persists in continued opposition against the king's kindness. This uh, second battle in the chapter is not a battle led by the Ammonites. It's a battle led by the alliance of the Ammonites, the Syrians. The Syrians could not accept the humiliation of fleeing from the battlefield. So what we see in them is a second, larger-scale assault in opposing God's king by calling together another battle. The Syrians were led by an arrogant and influential king, Hadadezer. We've met him back in chapter 8, about whom we read earlier. Hadadezer thought that he had better alliances than the Ammonites. And he did. He did have better alliances than the Ammonites. The number of people he brought together was way bigger than the alliance of the Ammonites. Hadadezer persuaded various kings from beyond the Euphrates River to join him in this battle. The number of the soldiers that he gathered together is not told to us. We're only told the number of casualties, of the losses, of this full-scale alliance. And just the casualties are are exceeding the number of alliances of the previous battle. 40,000 horsemen and 700 chariots riders killed. Sometimes we can't appreciate the size of mere numbers except when we compare them with something else that we are familiar with. For example, I learned this week an interesting comparison that just help me realize how big the state of Texas is. If you were to, to look at the distance from Brownsville, from the southern tip of the state, to the top of the state, the Panhandle, it's close to 900 miles. That's a lot of miles. It's like, wow, that's, that's long. But if we compare that distance with a distance from Brownsville to the border with Canada. Brownsville is in, uh, the panhandle is in the middle of that distance. In other words, to drive from Brownsville to the northern border of the United States to cross into Canada, 
half of your distance of driving would be in Texas. The other f half would be in five states. Well, all of a sudden, you realize, wow, our state is truly big. And you see, we accomplish that by not just giving you mile, number of miles, but by showing a comparison. Now, I want you to imagine the numbers in this battle. They're not just 40,000 foot soldiers. They're 40,000 horsemen killed. That means for this battle, there are at least 40,000 horses of the enemy. 40,000 horses. And God had commanded his king that the king should not have many horses. Wow, Lord, how are we going to face an enemy that has at least 40,000 horses on the battlefield? And chariots, we don't know how many chariots there had, but there were 700 chariot riders that were killed. That means there were at least 700 chariots on the battlefield. And actually, the numbers could have been more. This is, this is all that was captured and killed. Friends, when you look at that distance, when we look at those numbers, and perhaps how many were there to escape alive, the size of the enemy fighting against God's king was huge. It was unparalleled until this moment. Perhaps this is what David had in mind when he wrote Psalm 20. It's a great psalm trust, about trusting in the Lord in the face of great enemies. Psalm 20, verse 6 and on says, Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven, from his holy heaven, with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord, our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. Even against an army who had 40,000 horses on the battlefield and hundreds and hundreds of chariots. Friends, in the second battle, once again, the Lord did what seemed good in his eyes. There's no enemy too big for the Lord to handle, to battle, to protect his people and his king. The Lord brought these arrogant kings, Hadadezer and his allies, to their knees, crushing their armies. They did not merely flee from the battlefield. This is what's different about the second battlefield. They did not merely flee and escape alive from the battlefield. They died on the battlefield. The devastation is utter ruin. They came to the end of their lives, and including the commander of the army of Hadadezer, 
This man, apparently, he was known in ancient times because his name had to be spoken, had to be identified. A powerful army uh, general, he was wounded and died as well. The enemy was crushed. This victory against the Syrians and their allies was so monumental that it caused these kings to no longer serve the, Syri- the Ammonites and to become subject to King David instead. These are nations beyond the Euphrates River becoming subject to King David and making peace with the people of God. The point is, these kings beyond the Euphrates have learned a lesson to never come to the aid and the assistance of those who treat God suspiciously. He's not, such people are not worth defending or supporting. Instead, they learned the lesson of making peace with David and become his servants. This was a painful lesson for these kings to learn. They learned painfully how to bow their knee to God's anointed king. And friends, this was the message of Psalm 2 as well, the psalm that was read earlier in our service. Remember how that psalm started? Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And how does this psalm end? Verse 10 and through 12. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are those who take refuge in him. Oh, these kings have learned the painful lesson that you cannot win against the wrath of God's anointed king. These kings were brought into subjection. Hadadezer thought he could win to oppose. What a painful lesson for him as well. He lost the service of the neighboring nations beyond the Euphrates, and those, that service moved to the king that God had anointed. Well, friends, we are told a similar lesson in the New Testament that a time will come when every knee will bow before King Jesus. Paul said in Philippians 2, Therefore God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, until that day comes, let's learn from from the lessons of this chapter I don't know what are the ways in which your heart has a, an instinct of mistrusting or mistreating the kindness of God's king. Perhaps by suspicion and by suspicious attitudes towards the Lord. Perhaps it's by willful ignorance or willful procrastination or willful indifference. Don't commit the same mistake as these kings have committed. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 2. He speaks to the Jewish religious people who thought they knew God and yet were treating God with mistrust. Romans 2, 4 and 5. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impetinent 
impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Friends, don't mistreat the kindness of God. You can mistreat it suspiciously. You can mistreat it by treating it with willful ignorance, with willful delay, with willful non-responsiveness, thinking you got all the time in the world. Are you, season in, of, are you in a season of life when perhaps you are in some way mistreating the kindness of God's king? This chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 10, wants to convince us that rejecting the king's kindness is folly. This folly starts with that mistreating of kindness. It moves to open opposition, and then finally it just it persists, persists in continued opposition in a way that leads to utter ruin. You can't win when you despise the king's kindness. You will either come to ruin or bend the knee and serve him. And you can do that now. If you are not a Christian, consider the kindness of God that he would send his only son, Jesus, to pay the penalty that our rebellion and mistreatment of him deserves. And on the third day, as Jesus rose from the grave to prove to us that he paid in full, the kindness of God is still available and is still patiently waiting for you and I to respond to him. So if you have not repented of your sins, I want to encourage you today, would you turn away from your sins and embrace King Jesus by faith? If you are a believer, consider the kindness of God towards you to continue to call on you to, to treat the Lord and to treat others in non-suspicious, but in trusting, loving, charitable ways. Treat the Lord in that way and treat one another in that way. This is the kindness of God towards us in Christ. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being a God who has shown us your kindness. A kindness that overcomes any, any foes. But a kindness who will not remain in this posture forever towards those who continue to oppose you and resist you. Father, help us not to take your kindness for granted. Cause our hearts not to delay or procrastinate to respond to your kindness. Father, protect our hearts from mistreating you and your kindness. But enable us by your grace to respond to you graciously in a way that puts our confidence and trust in you. We pray all this, Father, in the name of Christ. Amen.